Well, this morning I want to begin on a different note. I want to just put a scenario in front of you. Imagine back 10, 15 years before the time of GPSs. Those things are so help us uh, find our way to places. But imagine you wanting to go to Florida, and uh, you're directionally challenged, and uh, you really don't know how to get there, but uh, you find, hear of a group of individuals, group of cars that are going to Florida, and uh, you decide you'd like to join them. They invite you to join them. It's led by someone older, and this morning if I could pick on some of you seniors just for a moment. He's someone approximately 80 years old. He seems somewhat religious, had a vision or two, and he knows the way to Florida. And so you join the group. You head down to Indy, and at Indy you take 70 West, and you soon see signs for St. Louis and like. Uh, you're directionally challenged, but you know a little bit about geography, so you're kind of worried. So at the next gas station, you ask this man, do you really know where you're going? And he says, yes, just trust me. And so after a while, you continue on, and you soon see signs on, when you're on 40 West for, for Little Rock, Arkansas. It's like, now you're really getting worried. Like, were you ever going to get to Florida? This morning, welcome to God's world. Welcome to a God who loves doing things that take you way beyond logic and science to things that seem absolutely impossible. And this morning, I know there are some of you who are in those impossible situations. In fact, I want you to see just how illogical God can be. Notice that the children of Israel were promised the land of Canaan. And that is up in here. It is east from the land of Goshen. There's Ramses up in here. And there were two, two routes, direct routes to the land of Canaan. The first route was, was uh, north along the Mediterranean Sea, right up to Gaza. And uh, there was a second route that was e easily, uh, equally accessible. There was the southern route where you take a Beersheba, would end up in Beersheba. But Moses led the children of Israel south. And if you notice, this is the Red Sea here. And here, it is an absolutely a dead end. It's a funnel. It's, there's no place to go. And uh, you, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the children of Israel. They weren't better ones. They weren't people who were travelers. These were people who were much like we are. They, they literally were working in factories, building bricks for these Egyptians. They were building Egyptian cities by the millions. They, they were not used to traveling or living in tents. And uh, they were, the, the other thing about this, they were immersed in Egyptian culture. They read Egyptian literature. They, their newspapers, their, their songs, their commerce... Suddenly they just find their world turned upside down. 
There's this 80-year-old man here who has seen God in a burning bush. And he is going to lead them to Canaan. After 10 plagues, he wants to lead them to Canaan. Can you imagine what kind of step of faith it would have taken for the children of Israel? You see, uh, it says in Exodus thirteen seventeen. it says it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that way, that way was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war that they return to Egypt. I want you to understand God had a reason for not taking the closest route. There's two reasons why God didn't take them at the two routes that were easily accessible. The first was he knew these people would quickly lose heart. The second reason, notice that, they would return to Egypt. The children of Israel, though they were Israelites, had Egypt in their heart. They carried Egypt with them. And uh, so he leads them south. I want you to understand that when God leads you, he doesn't play may I with you when he takes you to those impossible situations. How many of you could have imagined three years or five years the kind of work that God would take you through, the impossible situations he would lead you through? How many of you could have imagined that you'd be sitting in this small country church house three years ago or two years ago, even a year ago. You see, if you stop long enough to, to turn your focus from the culture that was steeped in the God's word, you can see that God can be trusted. So while we read in verse 18, God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up and harnessed out of the land of Egypt. It's as though God held them in his hand. Look at verse 22. It says, he took, them not, not, he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day or the pillar of the fire by night from the people. I mean, God was with these people. They had the cloud to lead them by day, which gave them shade. And they had the pillar of fire by night that would give them warmth in the coolness of the desert. And it also gave them a nightlight. God was constantly... Can you imagine having this miracle, seeing miracles every day? But no matter uh, how God provides for us, it seems that we still love to worry, to think, and to imagine the worst. My goodness, they had, they had the, the Red Sea to one side. To the other side of them was the wilderness. And as they came down into that V, there was nothing but water ahead. And uh, you, can, you can bet on it that some of them were thinking, what would happen if the Egyptians come after us? 
I mean, this is a trap. We've got nowhere to go. There's, by the way, there's, there's approximately two and a half million people. So we're not talking about a small group of people. Sure enough, the very thing they feared came to pass. We read in Exodus 14.5, And it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants were turned against the people. And they said, What have we done? We have let Israel go from serving us. They said, What are we, crazy? Our entire workforce is gone. And uh, sure enough, 14.6, he says, he made ready his chariot and took his people with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and the captains of over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh king of Egypt as he pursued after the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camping by the sea beside two names I can't pronounce. <laughs> you see, the Israelites were already fearful. They were already expecting the worst. And sure enough, they see dust in the distance. You know what they did? They did exactly what most of us would do. They panicked. I mean, they knew how they would be treated if the Egyptians got a hold of them. Verse 10 says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. Isn't it amazing? Can you imagine having seen all those plagues in Egypt? And here it is, but a few days, and they've already forgot about it. They've already forgot the amazing things God can do. Now, herein lies a great lesson. Notice what they do. And they said unto Moses, because there were no... Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? You see, when God doesn't work fast enough, there's always something else you can do. You can fry the preacher, his spokesman. Just as if Moses had this puppet called God, and he could tell God what to do. God didn't inquire of Moses. Verse 12. And is it not this word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Just notice the sarcasm. We hate to be an I told you so, but we told you so. Isn't it stupid? Wasn't that a stupid statement that it would be better to be slaves than to die? Verse 13. 
I want you to understand something about that statement. That statement is varies little indifference to the statement that was made by the Egyptians that said, why don't we just go after Israel? You know why? Because both of those statements are horizontal statements that do not consider at all, don't consider God in the least. That is Egyptian thinking. They're thinking like the Egyptians. Still words of wanderers, they're not worshipers. You see, if you buy into that kind of thinking, your life will be years of anxiety and panic. One of the things you need to stop right now and learn that God is sovereign and He does what He pleases. And He will change you into a worshiper if it means breaking your will to do it. I love Moses. Moses is not a wanderer. He's a worshiper. You see, Moses had 40 years of teaching by God. Some, in the, some as he took care of the sheep. He's had a front row seat to those 10 plagues, and he's watched God work firsthand. He's watched God be faithful in all of it. And so with any, without any nervousness or quivering in his voice, notice what Moses said to the people. He says, fear, not, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall shew you to, to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, you will not see them again no more forever. Forever. You know what the children of Israel are thinking? Yeah, right. We're all going to be dead. That's why we won't see him. <laughs> this is what you call a predicament. A predicament. Reminds me of President Trump and some of his tweets that he sometimes puts out. I've heard another uh, illustration of a predicament. Better definition. A predicament is being a very successful medical malpractice attorney who suddenly needs major surgery. <laughs> That's a predicament. You see, from a horizontal perspective, it absolutely looks impossible. They have water on this side. They have the wilderness on this side. They have the, uh, the wilderness of Sinai. There's mountains and there's water in front. Impossible. The, the Egyptians right behind him. One of the first steps from becoming, from changing from a wanderer to a worshiper is learning to trust God. And I really wish that as a congregation we could be known as people who have learned to trust God. No matter what you see, you read, you hear, you feel that you will learn how to trust God. There are two things that God asks of the children of Israel. He says, fear not and stand still. Allow me to translate that to you. God is saying, be quiet and shut up.
That's kind of hard for you to do for you if you're someone who thinks like an Egyptian. Someone who is used to manipulating your way through life, controlling your situation. Um, or if you listen to all the voices of, of the world today. If you're thinking like an Egyptian, it's really hard to do. Notice what he says in verse 14. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. God does some of his greatest work when we stay quiet and allow him and just watch what he can do. There are four amazing things that God does. In verse 15, the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest unto me, Speak unto the children of Israel that they may go forward. What is forward? Well, in front of the children of Israel is nothing but water. It gets wet, and it gets deep fast. God loves to do things that are, seem impossible. Secondly, he moves the cloud. He moves the cloud that is leading them to behind them. He changes from the front to the rear. Notice what he says in verse 19. He said, the angel of the Lord, which went, about, went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And then it came, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that one came not near to the other all night. Isn't that a great plan God had? All of a sudden, these Egyptians ran into a dense, dark fog. And they were in trouble because their chariots didn't have fog lights. It was dark. But to the Israelites, there was this fire which gave them light. So God gives them protection. If you're someone who thinks like an Egyptian, isn't it just amazing? That fog was a stop sign for them. They should have read that and said, wait a minute, God's still fighting for the Israelites. If we continue, we're going to be in trouble. But they don't. Isn't it amazing? After ten plagues and losing their firstborn, they are still oblivious to God working. That's that's how it is when you relate only on the horizontal. You can't see God at work. There's a third thing that God did. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Aren't you glad Moses, it was Moses putting his hand out, not you? Moses stretches his hand out across the street, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. God not only divides the waters, but he dries the seabed. I had to learn that the hard way uh, some time ago, years ago. I was out fishing, and uh, it was kind of hot, and so I thought I'd just take a dip. I'm not a very strong swimmer, so I preferred something that was a little more shallow. My depth finder said four feet. <laughs> So I said, great, I can handle this. I said, I dove off, and 
uh, I jumped into about two feet of mud. So it was quite a bit more than four feet. But see, God knows when he just divides the waters that that isn't going to be enough. That's going to be, the seabed is still a bog, a swamp. So he takes a strong east wind and he dries this all out. Years ago, I had the occasion of watching uh, the movie The Ten Commandments by Charles Heston. And uh, if, if any of you have ever seen that, Charles Heston is this great guy. He's, he, uh, he's standing there, <laughs> looks really cool, looks about 60 instead of 80, strong. He's holding his hands out across the water, and the water just kind of peels back. It's just... It's a great scene. And as great as that was, I mean, it beats any Sunday school lesson you've ever seen. But as good as that was, it, it didn't match what Moses did. The amazing miracle of God taking 40, 60, 80 foot walls of water and beginning to walk through the midst of it. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, we're talking several million people. Can't you just imagine moms and dads grabbing their children and saying, Son, look at this. This is what God can do. The children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall upon them on the right and on the left. Can you just imagine that? Amazing miracle. There's a fourth thing that God did, and that God destroyed the Egyptians, the enemies. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, even all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning which watched that the Lord looked upon the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels that they drave, drave, them, so have, drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand over the sea, that the waters may come again unto the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And the, Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength with, when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of the Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. God destroyed the enemies. Remember what Pharaoh said back in Exodus 5? Remember what Pharaoh said? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. I purposely omitted verses 17 and 18. I want you to see them. 
Notice what God says about Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they shall follow them and I will get my honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host and upon his chariots and upon, upon his horsemen and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. God is saying, when those waters came together, they will know I am God. Those Egyptians were screaming, Yahweh, Yahweh, as they drowned. They knew God when, after he was finished. The sad part about it, they didn't know him as a savior, they knew him as his judge. Every corpse that washed up on the shore was a testimony to God's amazing power. Notice what it says. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day and out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can't you imagine how amazing that was, having a family, having your children? You're holding your children here and saying, telling your children, look what God can do. Never forget this. Our God is amazing. He deserves our reverence. Our worship. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? Never forget this, children. Verse 31, And Israel saw that the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared Moses and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And then verse 15 of chap verse 1 of chapter 15 then sang Moses and the children of, of Israel the song unto the Lord and spake saying I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider hath and hath he thrown into the sea All of a sudden there was this amazing fear of God They were awestruck there was this incredible reverence for God and a hatred for sin. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to see that in churches again? Wouldn't it be great to see it in, in this assembly? Where those, where everyone is reverent, has a fear of God. Verse 15 ones as, and they sang, Moses then sang Moses and the children of Israel a song unto the Lord. You see, God is taking those hard-hearted Israelites, still clutching Egyptian idols and values, wanderers, and he's beginning to form an even greater miracle, slowly breaking their hearts, those hearts of doubt and fear, and making them worshipers. Allow me to give you four points this morning. They all begin with you become a worshiper when you realize it takes impossible situations to break lifetime habits. 
You know, every day we are surrounded by this humanism. We watch the Egyptians in action, Egyptian business, Egyptian thinking patterns, Egyptian attitudes, reactions and agendas. We keep up with the Egyptian news, Egyptian stock reports. All of it is totally humanistic. All of it leaves God out of the equation. And for some of you, it will take nothing less than an impossible situation, your back against the wall, for God to really get your attention, for you to trust. Number two, your response to you become you begin to become a worshiper when your response to impossibilities begins with simply looking up you consider god first god has priority in your life you see god isn't this sadistic individual who loves to put you into tight places and watch you squirm But he's serious about you learning how to trust and to believe. Even if it means breaking your will. Thirdly, you begin to become a worshiper when you allow God to fight your battles. So he gets all the glory. You know, we live in such prosperous times. There's little that we can't do if we really put our heart and mind to it, there's little that we can't achieve. And some of you are able to have done amazing things in life. You've accomplished a lot of things. You've set your mind on something, a plan, and you've achieved it. You've got it. But there's one thing you haven't got. That is what God wants. Too many of us chase the wind. On the back of your bulletin, you'll find the words, when I panic, I run. When I run, I, I lose. When I trust, God fights. When God fights, he wins. When he wins, I win. And when I win, I learn. And when I learn, my faith grows. For some of you, it is time for you to stop fighting and allow God to fight your battles. There's a fourth. You begin to become a worshiper when you realize God commands when the waters open and close and not you. God is in charge, not you. Online you'll find an article written by Raymond Edmond, which he called The Disciplines of Life. And he writes this about the discipline of delay. This is good. He writes, we live in a restless, impatient days. We have little time for preparation and less for meditation or worship. We feel we must be active, energetic, enthusiastic, and humanly effective. 
And we cannot understand why inactivity, weakness, weariness, and seemingly uselessness should become our lot. It appears to be so futile and foolish without plan or purpose. And then he makes this profound statement. The delay that instructs and prepares saves time, never loses it. He goes on to give an illustration. Hudson Taylor knew the testing that tempers the steel of the soul. An invalid, home at 29 years, at 29 after six years of intensive service in China, he settled with his little family in the east end of London. Outside interests lessened, friends began to forget him, and five long hidden years he spent in the dreary streets of poor part of London where the tailors were shut up to prayer and patience. As the years of obscurity progressed, prayer was the only way by which the burdened heart could, find, could obtain any relief. And when the discipline was complete, there emerged the China Inland Mission, at first only a tiny root, but destined of God to fill the land of China with gospel fruit. Nobody ever remembers the hidden years of Hudson Taylor. Because those are the years when he stood still, waited upon God, and refused to fear. Let's bow. The Lord never wastes a wilderness experience. In a group of this size, there's always someone going through it. And this morning, he knows right where you're at. He knows you're not comfortable. He knows that you're not at where you expected. He knows it defies logic. He knows it looks impossible. But God isn't lost. He's still with you. His, his cloud and his fire haven't departed. But God longs for you to trust him completely. And God will increasingly bring this wilderness closer and closer so that you have fewer and fewer options but to trust You will discover at the end of this journey, at the end of this, this wilderness experience, that he will part your waters. This morning, I want to ask you a very simple question. Won't you surrender today? Fathers, we bow before you. We come to the close of this, this part of scripture. And, and Lord, you have spoken to all of us in, in many different ways. Thank you for helping us to understand you don't waste wilderness experiences. That there's, there's logic, you have reasons for doing the things the way you do them. 
Or help us to not be Egyptians, but help us to stand still and wait and observe you working to trust. Because, Father, we know there's so many things to be learned by it. Lord, we want to give you the glory for what you will do with your word. We pray that we, we trust your promise that it won't return void again. May it accomplish that which it has been said. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. James, I want to turn the time over to you.